One thing that we're saying at the moment at the CIPD is that HR needs to be principles-led, needs to be evidence-based and outcomes-driven. Johnny Gifford is Research Advisor at the CIPD. In terms of being outcomes-driven, it's one of the areas that the HR does quite well in historically, but one of the missing links is often being evidence-based. Part of his remit is exploring what behavioural science can tell us about how our minds operate when we're working. Those insights play directly into many of the big HR issues, recruitment, people management, learning and development, to name just three. What we need is for good people management practices to come out of uh, a strong evidence base. So to do this, we need to understand human behaviour in the workplace. We need to understand people's reactions, people's mindsets, how we think in, in work environments. And that's where the behavioural science insights really kick in. Hilary Scarlett is a consultant and author. She designed and leads the Neuroscience of Leadership Masterclass for Senior Civil Servants. And she's also worked with Lloyds Banking Group, the Department for Business, Innovation and Skills and BAE Systems. We started with the basics. What is behavioural science? What is behavioural science? Well, behavioural science is, is the study of the brain, how it works, what it needs, and, and applied neuroscience about how to apply it to actually to the organisation in practical terms. Behavioural science draws on behavioural economics, cognitive psychology and social neuroscience. And by using brain scans, we now have visuals which can show us how different parts of the brain light up with different stimuli. Or in other words... We now have solid data on how we respond to situations. Now, in the day-to-day -day rush to get things done, it's easy to fall into thinking of any given organisation as a group of teams, a series of systems, or just a bunch of assets. But if you picture it as a collection of human brains, things start to get way more interesting. What does the brain really need? What puts the brain into a good place where it can think, it can focus, it's more willing to collaborate? And and what we've discovered about the brains really is there's, for the brain, it's all about survival. That's the key thing it wants to do. Our brains really are still, they're not really designed to work in the 21st work, century workplace. They're still really designed to deal with the savannah. And to achieve that, there are two key things. It wants to avoid threat. It wants to seek out reward. But we're much more sensitive to threat because if out of the savannah of the saber-toothed tiger got us, it was game over. So we're much more attuned to threat. And when we're in a threat state, we can't think straight. We can't think as well. We're distracted. It impacts our memory. We see the world as a more threatening place. But when we are in the reward state in our, in our brain, that's when we're really engaged. That's when we can focus, collaborate, think more positively. So just understanding the, the, the brain, what it needs in terms of what gets it into a reward state, means you're then more likely to get an employee into a place where they can, they can be more engaged. If you're thinking, yeah, but some people really cannot learn new stuff, they're just too set in their ways, well, think again. Neuroscientists at University College London looked absolutely at the brains of black cab drivers and compared them with the brains of bus drivers in London. And you think on the surface there, was, there were two very similar jobs. But what they found with black cab drivers, that part of the brain, the hippocampus, that's to do with memory, especially spatial memory, had grown as a result of having learned all that knowledge over the four or five years. And, and that was the first example of proving that adults' brains can change and restructure if we choose to learn. And where I think that's really important 
important in organisational terms. I think often in organisations, people, when we're going through change, struggle with, can I learn new skills? Is it, are, are quite daunted about, can I learn to do things differently? That study absolutely proves that as adults, if we want to, we can learn and we can change. Samantha Rocky spent the last 20 years working in organisational strategy, performance and development. For much of that time, she was global head of leadership development for SAB Miller. Now, though, she's co-founded a new organisation, Thompson Harrison. It's a leadership development consultancy designed to work with leaders and their organisations as they find their way through large-scale transformation. We started thinking about behavioural science sort of several decades ago, actually. We've got a long history of using practices from psychology, from behavioural economics and more recently from neuroscience in our leadership development. So it's been part of the way we've thought about leadership development for you know, well over 15 years. Neuroscience has really only become the sort of massive force that it is today over, I guess, over the last two or three years, actually. Yes, and still a lot of ignorance and scepticism about it. I think people understand about psychology, we're kind of all on board with that, but the, the sense that neuroscience can play into learning, into development of all sorts, isn't embedded yet, is it? Well, what's really interesting about that, actually, is that it feels so common sense when someone's describing how people operate. It, it's almost so obvious. But what's really exciting, I think, about neuroscience is that the uh, sort of common sense practice is now being backed up by scientific evidence. As an HR practitioner, I think it's almost starting to become a golden era a nice place to be in, I think. So in terms of leadership, when you're working with leaders and potential mm-hmm. leaders, presumably, how does this play into that? So if we start right at the beginning, um, very simple things. For example, people can only concentrate for a short period of time, for around 20 minutes, after which fatigue sets in, people start to get distracted. What kind of snacks you would offer to the delegate during the course of the day. So and if you're going to... Be? So we know that nuts and sort of low GI food is much better for the brain, keeping people hydrated. By ensuring that people drink regularly during the course of the day, water that is, you can already see an uplift in the retention of knowledge. I mean, these are very simple, fundamental things. And then moving up onto the next stage is how do adults like to learn? Well, most people, unsurprisingly, don't like to be told what to do. People like to figure it out for themselves. People like to be given challenges. The brain is wired to try and problem solve. Um, people like to draw on their own experiences. People, we know, people get enthusiastic and excited about a topic when they can relate it back to what their own experience is. So much of the leadership development that I put in place or I develop uses the learner as content. So there's so much wisdom in a room, it's almost impossible to get somebody to come in and tell an audience of 20 people enough information that would have meaning rather how do you use those 20 people and the experiences that they've gone through and the shared wisdom of that group to to kickstart the learning so it's networking it's collaborative learning it is very i think collaborative learning is absolutely key the content is important but the space between the content is even more important because there's a temptation isn't there particularly with senior people to pack out a schedule with content And you're saying, no, 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 step back. I think that is one of the greatest dangers. And as soon as you build in space, people have described it as the kind of grey bits in between. And that's really where you get the magic happening. So as an HR, how do you help employees to get into this up for learning, ready to achieve state? 
Things like um, having a sense of control makes a big difference to the brain. Choice is, it makes a big difference to the brain. Some control. So things like making sure people do feel, feel um, that they are learning and growing, because learning and growing puts people into, into a better place. Having a sense of purpose is very important to the brain as well. So feeling that what I'm doing is, is meaningful and useful is important. And I think one of the areas we've hugely underestimated is our, our need for social connection, for relationships. That belonging. Belonging. That I think we, we get it in our personal lives but somehow we expect people to walk in the office door and be terribly professional and not have quite that same need for relationships for for belonging as you say but actually all the science shows is is absolutely fundamental to us and um, that because we're mammals that we wouldn't make it through our first months and years of, of life if there weren't somebody there looking out for us looking after us and that carries on through life and even the workplace is somebody on my side is somebody interested in me because if they are my brain's in a good place if they're not my brain's in a threat state and can't focus being in that receive and learn Mm. and move forward mode Mm. the thing you've just described I mean that must play into social and collaborative learning that we hear so much about now this sense that you can learn because yes. you're feeling part of the group and you yes. feel that you belong. Yes, yeah. And indeed, it's really important to feel part of the group. And there's, and there's some fantastic research done by a psychologist called Baumeister who looks at the impact on our ability to learn, to make decisions, to think if we don't feel we're part of the group, if we feel we're socially rejected. And it has a quite dramatic effect on us. And I think every leader, every manager, every organisation needs to us how important this is to the brain that if we don't feel we belong to the group, Group, that then we can't collaborate and, and learn in the same way. I wonder how many meetings take place across the country every day. Too many, probably. But Hillary has a straightforward idea to get more out of all that time spent around a meeting room table. Just getting people at the beginning of a meeting or a session to talk about something they feel good about, to talk about something they feel proud about. Because the very fact of talking about something I feel proud about activates the reward network in my brain, which puts my brain into a better place. So it's about how you're framing conversations, how you're yeah. framing meetings. Yes. There's also a lot about personal emotional regulation, that, that um, emotions are contagious. So if the leader is feeling stressed or anxious, so quickly the team will start to feel stressed and anxious as well so for a lot of leads I think some of the insights have been how they learn to manage their own emotions is important and one of the things that neuroscience teaches is actually suppressing an emotion is not a good thing to do if you're feeling really angry and think I'm going to go into a meeting and pretend I'm fine actually people pick it up through through behavior and actually we sweat out stress hormones through our skin so people pick it up in different ways absolutely All the macro, political and economic uncertainty we're experiencing right now is worth keeping in mind when you picture your co-workers under that imaginary brain scanner. And that's because when we don't know what's going to happen next in whatever area of our lives, that uncertainty puts us in a threat state. Absolutely, absolutely. Uncertainty is a very difficult thing for the brain to deal with. Our brains goes back to survival. They want information, they want certainty, because if they've got information and certainty, they can predict, they can better protect us, they feel. So our brains don't like uncertainty. And I've seen that in organisations. Um, there was one bank I was working with. I was asked to work with the leaders in one part of a bank, which was going to be closed down within 18 months. But interesting, in that part of the bank, when I was working with those leaders, it in terms of in- engagement surveys that did better than the main bank and in terms of performance they did better than the main bank it's because they said 
OK, because we know, we know in 18 months' time we will be out of a job, we will be out of here, so we can get on and make a, a plan. The people back in the main bank, they think they've got a job, but everybody knows banking is precarious right now, so they might or they might not. So it's still uncertain. So it's still uncertain. And they were engaged And they the were task. engaged, and they were engaged, absolutely. And they had 18 months, they knew what they were doing, they had a timeline. It used to be musculoskeletal problems that kept people off work. These days, as we all know, it's mostly stress. But stress isn't a well-defined term, and nor are its effects. So when it comes to our working lives, a degree of stress can be very useful. Here's Samantha again. You're only ever going to get the pearl if people feel anxious, stressed, nervous. Those are good. Really? That we want people to feel in that state. Do you? Because I would have thought that would put them in a kind of fight or flight mode where they're not taking in data, they're just thinking about what do I need to do now? Well, that's why the learning container is so important. So you have to create the safety, but then you have to put the edge in. So how would you apply that? I'm I'm thinking people listening to this thinking, how do I do this to my people without transgressing legally? Um, Yeah, you don't want to make them so stressed out. I mean, it's it's a it's a quite a narrow band. What would you do? I mean, just in an ordinary organisation, they're thinking about this. I I understand the logic of it. So it's what taking people out of their comfort zone a little yes, bit. Yes, exactly. I think that's well put. Um, I think that one of the ways that we do it with very senior leaders and I have done with our managing directors program is to put in provocation. So getting really interesting people to come and ask them very scary questions. An example I would use is uh, we used a very well-known philosopher from Oxford who sat in a circle with them and then just asked the most astonishingly provocative questions. What sort of thing? Well, it was a lot about ethics, actually, what was happening with the Volkswagen emission scandal. So she was sort of asking them challenging questions like, if you'd been CEO of VW, would you have done it if you thought you could have got away with it? That sort of thing. That was exactly the right kind of question (laughs) she would have asked, yeah. So they're all slightly on the edge of their seat, even though it's a training session. So I think this idea that learning and development needs to be a kind of safe and comfortable place in which people, you know, sit around in groups. um, No, I think that it needs to be edgy. It needs to be something which really engages people's minds. Is that for everyone or is that just at the top end leadership training end? I mean, if we're talking about more junior, younger people. We ran a a graduate program and actually um, our graduates were thoroughly enjoying the challenge. You made them uncomfortable too? Yeah, of course. I mean, (laughs) it's more just... On their mettle. Yeah. So feeling a little bit uncomfortable in a learning situation can be good. But strung out and running on empty, not so good when it comes to taking in new information or new ideas. I've been doing a lot of work with various government departments. And I think one of the one of the challenges for public and private sector is how do you, when, when there's been so much um, cost going, going on and redundancies and re- not fewer people. And I hear this phrase, both in the private and public sector, getting more from less. So fewer people, but how do we keep on pushing them to, 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 to perform? But there's a limit to how much you can do that because what, what the behavioural science shows is, is, yes, we all need to be stretched, we need to be challenged, but there is a tipping point. There's a sort of sweet spot at which we are challenged. But if we're challenged too much, if we have too many deadlines, too many pressures, actually what the, the science shows is the prefrontal cortex, the bit of the brain where we do our thinking and planning, actually starts to close down. And how do you see that if you're a line manager or mm. an HR? How do you... 
identify that tipping point? I think it's about yes. I, I, absolutely, I think I think it's for leads manager to absolutely who who know their teams well to see when somebody's getting to that point where they're no longer thinking at their best or thinking thinking straight. And I had only recently really busy day, and my colleague turned to me and said, "And what do you want for lunch?" And it was like it's the final straw. I couldn't even say. <laughs> I what, don't know. I, I can't even. Couldn't even <laughs> like not another decision I've got to make. More on behavioural science and work, go to the CIPD website. There is carefully curated information there with reports, blogs and podcasts to shed light and get you thinking. Next month, we're digging into social learning. How can you build it into your L&D strategy and what might it mean for the L&D profession? Join me then, first Tuesday of the month, as always. Thanks for listening.